Welcome to the MacGyver Newsmakers podcast. I am Chris Rochester, not Matt Kittle. Um, I'm sitting before a man who used to be mm-hmm. a Cuban communist, and now he's one of the, uh, I would say, one of the foremost advocates for freedom. And as a matter of fact, uh, Ismael Hernandez is the founder yes. and CEO of the Freedom and Virtue Institute. Yes. Uh, tell us uh, quickly, what, what is the Freedom and Virtue Institute? The Freedom and Virtue Institute started 10 years ago as an, uh, as an effort to penetrate especially minority and poor communities with the message of freedom, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, the values of American life, Western civilization, and especially the, the moral capacity of the human person to transcend the circumstances of his or her life, to, make, to become protagonists of la- stories of success that it is possible that for people to really change their life by the choices they make for themselves. And we create practical, simple projects to make that happen. So it's a, uh, it's a way of, you, you talked about during your speech, and I should mention, we'll, we'll get to the full speech soon. Uh, we're just uh, introducing you to, yes. to Mr. Hernandez here. But um, these are organizations that introduce uh, young people and uh, other folks, as you've done here today, there was a yes. diver- pretty diverse crowd um, to uh, what I would call kind of a different way of looking at poverty yes. versus uh, f- the flourishing of the human being Absolutely. rather than your typical, um, you know, your typical idea of welfare and, and virtue signaling by by. Uh, supporting bigger government programs. Um, I was wondering, because there's a lot of talking in, in the presentation you gave about about that perspective, and it's really, really great. Um, but from a half boots-on-the-ground perspective, if you were king for a day, welfare czar of the United States for a day, or um, you could implement whatever policies you, you wanted, what, what would those policies look like to change the way we do things today? Job creation, job creation, and, and bring the decision making about things of government to the local community. The people in their, in their local communities know their communities better than, than bureaucrats in Washington. You know what is better for your own community. And when you experience the decision of your own, de- your own decisions by the way you live in your community, when you drive the roads and the roads have holes, you, you do something about it. It's easier from Washington to have the uh, box uh, generalized uh, answers to the problems of poverty. Another is to make them locally. And to do these things to engaging the poor in the process of meeting their needs. And as you said, to focus on making people flourish, not on poverty alleviation. You know, in the Freedom of Virtue Institute, we are not interested in, in alleviating people's poverty. We want to see people flourish. Because when they flourish, their poverty will be taken care of. So you don't look at the need, you look at the person. And the person as a, as a universe of possibilities. And as I said in my speak, an engine of wealth creation, waiting for someone to crank that engine and, and let it soar. You know? So that's what, that's what poverty alleviation is. You create the opportunities. We, you trust people. You, you encourage them, and then let, let them be. Get out of the way. <laughs> Gave the pathway to the pond so that they can <laughs> exactly. fish for themselves. Absolutely, During yes. the presentation. So this is, 
Um, <laughs> it's a way of reminding people that poverty, people in poverty aren't just statistics, but they're dignified individuals who want to work. You made that point. Absolutely. You drove that point home. They, they yes. want to work. They're not Absolutely. lazy. Yes. But you have to have the systems set up in place to Absolutely. encourage them to do so. When the systems you create reflect the nature of the human person as capable and free, people prosper. It's as simple as that. It's, it, this is not that complicated. When you trust in people and you give them the opportunity to, to, to engage themselves in productive activity, they will take care of themselves. Of course, for some people, it's going to be more difficult. They may come from environments that are difficult, families that are destroyed, and they may have all kinds of situations in life. We are not discounting that, but we are not letting the problem be the obstacle for trusting them. And we don't believe in this paternalistic, condescending attitude towards the poor, that they use mouths to be fed and bodies to be clothed. No, they are unique, unrepeatable persons made in the image and likeness of God, and they have that moral capacity of self-realization. If you believe in that about the poor, you will see them prosper. If you don't believe that, the best you can do is get out of the way. Get out of the business of helping poor the poor, because you will do more harm than good. We have uh, coming up about an hour long talk that uh, you gave here in Milwaukee today. Um, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave what I just said a little bit ago on the table as too much of a tease. I said yes. you're a former self-avowed communist. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so give us a couple minutes. I mean, it's a long, yes. long transformation, a long journey from there. But give us a couple minutes on how, how you made that Yes. Well, I, I was actually born in Puerto Rico. My father was a founding member of the Puerto Rican Communist Party in Puerto Rico, and he was, it was a party very heavily aligned with the Cuban Revolution. My father will go there all the time. And out of that, he wasn't just someone who passed out the pamphlet. Uh, he no, was right no, no, there. No. My start. father was not a cafe latte iPhone wearing revolutionary like the ones we have here in <laughs> in America. <laughs> he was an actual revolutionary who gave his life for that. I showed the FBI file that I have about my father. I joined the party with him. My mom, at the same time, sent me to to mass with friends without my father knowing about it. And I developed this double consciousness, Marx and Jesus. And eventually, I wanted to become a Jesuit priest because, you know, the Jesuits were all Marxists. So I thought I could have my cake and eat it too. You know, I could play religion and do politics at the same time. I was going to be sent to Nicaragua, to Sandinista, Nicaragua. It did not happen because seven Jesuits were murdered there in El Salvador. And I was going to be living in the home where they were massacred. Out of concern for us, they did not send us there. And I landed at the University of Southern Mississippi, of all places. <laughs> and uh, I, I experienced through several years, it did not happen immediately, a conversion, you know, because I had, the, for the first time, I had the opportunity to, to, to experience American freedom. And, and that created a lot of turmoil in my life because I, I knew that there was something happening to me that I did not want to happen. I did not want to surrender Marxism. Think about it. When you are a real Marxism, all your relationships are Marxist. It's a quasi-religion. 
is your identity and to surrender that is not easy it's, it's not happen easily talk, talk about the um the drop in a wave Versus yes, yes, that, that dichotomy yes. between Absolutely. the two different yeah. ways of it. One of the things I learned in America is the, the power and importance of the individual human person. You know, that the individual person is the bearer of rights and also the bearer of the image of God in him. But as a Marxist, that's not the way we see the human person. The individual is really is insignificant. It's like a, a a faithful drop in a great wave, the great wave of revolution. Within that wave, your life has meaning and value. Apart from that wave, you are nothing. You are a curious accumulation of atoms destined to nothingness when you die. And that's it. You have no value as an individual, but within the wave, you have. But America told me that that's a lie. It's not true. You know that 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 your individuality is not surrender within a collective label that you are an individual. Of course, you are not an atom to yourself. Individual persons are connected. We are born into families. We, we are born out of a collective. But we stand as sui generis as individuals. And God expects us to use our capacities as individuals for our good and the good of our families. So it's a matter of priority. It's not a matter of the community or the individual. But the individual within his community affirming his individuality for the good of himself and those he loves. So if you're deriving your meaning from almost entirely to being part of this movement, mm -hmm. I could understand how all-consuming that must be if you're a college Marxist today. <laughs> yes. And this kind of segues into what, what I wanted to just talk touch on briefly. Um, I'm sure you're busy because saving capitalism and individual <laughs> liberty is a very busy job nowadays. But what yes. led you to what led you to start the Freedom and Virtue Institute? I I was in ministry uh, in the inner cities of Southwest Florida, and I began to see the paternalistic, condescending ways that we treat the poor. We basically give them stuff. That's what we do. We give them free stuff and free stuff, and under the weight of the free stuff is the person awaiting to be uh, his spirit to be awakened. And and I did not like that. You know, I was being told by my bishop, Ismael, don't be controversial. You know, just pay people's bills, just give them food. And I kept telling him, you know. If I'm not controversial, I'm part of the problem. This, and I did not like what I saw. So I left, I, I quit my job, and I began the institute because I wanted to have a different outlook about what it means to be poor, to begin to respect the poor instead of feeling sorry for them, and see them as individual persons who are beautiful, are wonderful, have what it takes, and we need to be there to strengthen them in that journey of, of success in life. And only freedom can do that. Only economic freedom can do that. Only opportunity to be free in the economy can do that for the poor. Well, um, I, uh, I mentioned that following this will be the full speech. I strongly encourage people to listen to it because that it will change your way of looking at a lot of things. Did for me, and just so you know, so well, well worth the hour. Um, now, if people are interested in hearing this, you know, bringing you to speak yes. uh, in front of a group, or let's say they're interested in the club, or if you want to 
join <laughs> Isabel Hernandez on the front lines yes. of fighting for capitalism, how do they do that? The best way is to go to our website, fvinstitute.org. They can check, uh, look at what we do. They can call us at my phone number. I don't know if I can give it, 239-240-9393. Uh, Leave us a message, and we'll be in contact with you. All right, Ismael Hernandez, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, saving freedom is a busy job nowadays, yes. so we really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully we'll see you back around Wisconsin before too long. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so sir. much. Okay. Thank you again for this opportunity, and uh, please, uh, I want this to be a conversation. You have any questions or comments at any time, please feel free. We're going to have questions at the end, but at any time, please uh, feel free to, to, to say what you need to say, and please agree to disagree, agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. Uh, but I want to, this presentation to be something positive. It's not simply about the problems with socialism, but what can we do to make our society a better society here and now in America today? Uh, and as context for that, I would like to talk to you a little bit about my, my own life. Uh, there's only one difference, is that I was uh, the son of a Marxist, but I grew up in Puerto Rico in the 1960s. Uh, my father was founding member of the Puerto Rican Communist Party, and he was there in 1959. The other 15, 16 men where they started the Communist Party of, of Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, my father used to tell me that, you know, America was the enemy of the human race. And it was our sacred duty to destroy this country. And, you know, I believe him. He's, he's my dad. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that is the kind of environment I grew up listening to the never-ending speeches of Fidel Castro. When you are five years old, they put you to listen to seven-hour speeches. <laughs> and listen to my father's harangues against Yankee imperialism and capitalism constantly, which were very funny for us, uh, but not for the neighbors <laughs> who were always complaining. And uh, listening to him to tell my, telling my mother that he will give the lives of these four children we have at home for socialism, and, and seeing my mother cry. And we, I remember coming to console her but deep inside of me, you know, I wanted what my father was offering. There was something intoxicating about it. There was something different. Made us this, give it, have this sense that, that we can change the world, that we have the moral and the intellectual capacity to, you know, like unscramble the egg of history and put it back in the egg and create heaven on earth here, here in society. So that's the kind of environment I, I grew up. Uh, I always say that I was in a real Marxist household, a uh, red diaper baby. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I never forget also the, the time when my mother was again crying. And uh, uh, she left the home in the middle of the night and to talk with two men who were always in front of our home in, inside a car. Many years later, I found out that they were FBI agents always uh, looking after my father, and, and I hated them. I hated them with a passion. I, I hated them for the Puerto Rican poverty of the 1960s that surrounded us, a poverty I had not seen here, really. And I hated them for the bad marriage between my mom and my dad because my father was only about revolution. He was in love with revolution, not with her. 
and she was just trying to, to feed four kids at home and she couldn't she couldn't do it do it. I, I brought with me here something. I brought in my father's FBI file that denotes 50 years of communist activity, two court cases for terrorism, and a life dedicated to Marxism. He used to go to, to Cuba constantly. We will sell propaganda with him. I will go to the never-ending uh, communist cells that with, with meetings that were so boring that we'll go into the wee of the night. And But I had that kind of experience in my life growing up. I always say that we were a Marxist, a real Marxist uh, family. It's not like the kind of, you know, cafe latte iPhone wearing American revolutionaries, you know? <laughs> they talk about revolution and they say, let's go to the rally and let's go shopping after, after the rally. Yeah? I always say that the best place in the world to be communist is here in America, where you can think like a communist, you just have to live like a communist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that is the kind of environment I, I grew up in. And, uh, at the same time, my mother was well, a humble Puerto Rican woman of the 1960s. He used to say, well, if he says we are communists, OK, we are communists. She didn't care about politics. Again, she only cared about the family. And she would sneak me and my older brother to go to mass with friends without my father knowing about it, because he wouldn't have allowed it, you know. Religion is the opium of the people that keeps you thinking on heaven while the capitalists are having a good time here on earth, as my father used to, used to tell us. So we would go to mass with friends, and uh, that created in me a sort of double consciousness, you know, Marx and Jesus, uh, the kingdom and revolution at the same time. It was a very confusing time for me in my life. And uh, it, you can imagine that that's kind of confusion. So as I grew up, uh, what was a good Catholic communist boy to do? I joined the Jesuit order, of course. <laughs> I decided to become a Jesuit priest because they were all Marxists. And I said, this is my place. You know, I can have my, my cake and eat it too. <laughs> I could be religious and communist at the same time. So my father, who was an atheist, was jealous about me because he knew the Jesuits. Uh, and you had to be some kind of, of Marxist or some kind of radical to even be accepted into the Jesuit order. If you were not, you were not, uh, you were not in. So I got in easily. <laughs> and uh, I was, I did my first vows, and I was looking forward to go to Nicaragua. They were going to send me to Sandinista, Nicaragua to study philosophy, the heart of the revolution. You can imagine, that's the dream come true for a, for a socialist. This is the mid-1980s, revolution was brewing all over Central and South America. Liberation theology was in the air, and the Jesuits were at the forefront of that, of that effort. I was going to be living in Nicaragua and, and study at the University of El Salvador that is right there in the border between Nicaragua and El Salvador. And I was going to bask at the feet of the great masters of the liberation theology. Ignacio Ayacuría, Juan Luis Segundo, Gustavo Gutierrez. All these men taught at the University of El Salvador. I was going to be their student. I couldn't wait to go to, to Nicaragua. Uh, but it would never happen. Uh, seven Jesuits were murdered in El Salvador. You probably remember what happened in 1987. And they were murdered in the home where I was going to be living. So out of concern for us, they did, decided not to send us to Nicaragua. 
and uh, they wanted to send me to Fordham here in the United States, and I say, I'm not going to America, I hate America. I hate the gods of the monster, as we used to call the, the, the United States in the party. And I left seminary. You know, I really did not have a vocation to the priesthood. I wanted to be a revolutionary priest in Nicaragua fighting America. That's different. You know? <laughs> That's very different. When that did not happen, I left angry at the world, angry at America even more. I w went back to my small town in Isabela, Puerto Rico. But eventually, some friends of mine have been here studying, and they convinced me that I should further my studies. I had gone to the University of Puerto Rico, and I did a bachelor's degree in political science because I wanted to intellectually defeat America. That was the only reason I did it. I barely graduated because I did more revolutionizing than studying. <laughs> but, but I probably have my own FBI file somewhere. But, but uh, I, I decided to come here to the United States anyway. And I landed at the University of Southern Mississippi, of all places. <laughs> so you can imagine this black boy, communist who hates America, lands in Dixie. <laughs> that, that was a cultural shock to, take, to tell you the least. You know, I could not take the food, I could not take the culture, I did not understand the Southern draw. I could not take that, what you call coffee, I couldn't take that either. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I really, it was a cultural shock. I was ready to go home, but eventually I, I began to like it and stay. And some things happened to me. I always say that even though I hated America, when I landed right there in the University of Southern Mississippi, my lungs were filled with the bread of freedom. Because for the first time in my life, I had the opportunity to, you know, to, to challenge the safe assumptions of my ideology. And sometimes we don't have that opportunity in life. We live in a context. We're born there. We think that's, that life is the way we learn. And there's nothing more. I, for me, Marxism was the truth. It was, it's a quasi-religion that tells you that we have the truth. All we have to do is convince the world that this is the truth. You don't challenge that. That's part of your identity. But when I came to America, I began to, to experience certain things that, that really challenged my, my safe assumptions. The first thing that happened to me was that you know, I had good grades. And uh, a, one day, they called me to the dean's office, and they offered me a full assistantship, pay me all my, my studies. I did not even apply for that scholarship. And inside of me, I said, you know, this is not supposed to be happening. You know, I hate their guts, and they are rewarding me. <laughs> There's something wrong here. But, but dimly, I think that I began to realize a new way of being human. Because as a Marxist, your, your dignity lies in being a faithful drop in a great way. The way is revolution. And if you're a faithful job, you're a faithful revolutionary, your life has meaning, and you have dignity within that great way. Apart from that way, you're nothing. You're just a curious accumulation of, of atoms destined one day to nothingness. That's what you are. There is no dignity in the individual human person apart from the movement. But in America, I began to experience that the individual human person made in the image and likeness of God has the moral capacity of self-realization. That there is dignity in the individual. Because we have certain capacities. The first one is reason. We can, we can 
devise entire universes in our, in our minds and make them to fruition. Think about the iPhone. We cannot live now without the iPhone. But that started in the mind of one individual or a few individuals that eventually made it happen. But more importantly, with our reason, we can dis discover truth. We can discover truth. And the second capacity we have is that volitional capacity of making choices for ourselves. Yeah, we can move ourselves this way, or we can move ourselves the other way. And we can put our hands in the dirt, and we can recreate our environment. Become, we become like co-creators with God, where we can put our hands in the dirt and make something happen in our lives. And I, I discovered those beliefs, as I said, dimly in the beginning, right there in southern Mississippi. The second thing that happened to me that was that that thing that you call poverty here in America, it was a joke. I mean, I said, compared with the Puerto Rican poverty of the 1960s, the, the poorest state in the United States was heaven. I said, give me some of that poverty, please. You know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, the reality is that I discovered is that, that we Americans, we, we are bored in affluence. We are bored in affluence. Like, we have so much that now we want to recreate society. We want to reinvent the world because we have to entertain ourselves between our tea time and the time to go to the gap. <laughs> we have to do something to change a world that is the best world manageable, but we have time to do that. We have the resources to, to, to engage in that kind of, of a change. And as I was experiencing these realities in my life and these changes, the Berlin Wall fell. And that wasn't supposed to happen either. <laughs> and, and that really solidified my, my belief that I probably was wrong after all. And that, that's when I began to pick up a book for the first time and begin to dare to read other things that were different. Or begin to read things that I, I read before but I didn't see the same things. You know, ideologies are like, you know, like a prism through which we look at reality. And you and I could be looking at the same reality, and we will see different things, simply because that is a different prism. It's like that comfortable pair of glasses you don't want to change, you know? And to take those glasses and put, put them to the side and put on a new pair of glasses is challenging and difficult. And I thank God that I had that opportunity. My father did not have that opportunity. I, I lost my father because the last five years of his life, he, we were not in speaking terms because he died a good communist and he could not accept that the most radical of his sons had joined the enemy, basically. <laughs> and uh, that was a very difficult time in my life. But something he left with me is still important for me to this day. In fact, we st I dedicated the Freedom of Virtue Institute to him. Because at the end of his life, he, told, he called me to Puerto Rico, and he, in his deathbed, he told me, Ismael, I don't accept, and I don't understand what you have embraced, but you better not be a fence-sitter. You better fight for what you say you believe. Don't sit on the fences. And in America, we have a lot of fence-sitters. We talk about freedom, <laughs> faith, all this, become political buzzwords. And politics has become a distraction, really. We are distracted with politics, and we are losing our culture. We are losing the values that made this country great. And that's what we need to go back. We need that kind of revolutionary zeal 
than my father had to begin to then recreate our society with the same values that made this society great. So as I move out of those ideas at great personal cost, I was amazed at how Americans were embracing those ideas in the way that, that we especially treat the poor. You know, we have, we have these ideas, and that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about today. What it means to be poor in America, and how can we address those issues? And at the end, we will begin to talk about the Self-Reliance Club, that is the program that I would like to present to you. But, but I think that, that we treat people in this kind of collectivized identity. We don't see the person. We see the need. You know, we, we, we are so focused on feeling the need that we don't look at the eyes of the poor. We don't, we don't see them as unique and unrepeatable persons made in the image of God with that moral capacity of changing, changing their lives by the choices they make. We see them as more as victims of forces outside of their control, passive recipients of magnanimity instead of active participants in lives built by themselves. And when we begin to, to, to re-understand re what it means to be poor, what, what it means to be a human being, more importantly, then we begin to change the way we try to address the problems in America. And that is what we, I learned in this exercise. I remember I engaged in, in, in ministry work in the inner cities. And I saw alive and well the assumptions about the human person that the socialists have, this collectivist understanding of the human person. You know? Sometimes we say they're poor. What does that mean? It means absolutely nothing. It, it doesn't mean anything. It means that you now have a lot of assumptions about the person you just met. You, you have all kinds of assumptions in your mind because that is what is expected of this group. The same happens with race in America. We are, we are, we are, we are drowning in a, an expansive and yet shallow sea of color because we have these, these attitudes and the beliefs about the other that, that we box people into these meaningless categories. And, and the Freedom of Birthday Institute grew out of a frustration with the way we treated the poor. I remember one day in, at my ministry desk in, in Fort Myers, Florida, in the inner city. And I was still struggling with all these ideas. And I looked at the people that, who were coming to, for us to pay their bills. And it dawned on me that I began to see the children of those we, we had been paying their bills for a long time coming themselves for us to pay their bills. And I began to see myself that I was part of the problem. I was part of this cycle of dependency that keeps people more or less well-fed but still in the bondage of dependency. I did not see them the way I was discovering the human person is, unique and repeatable, made in the image and likeness of God with the moral capacity of changing their lives by the choices they make. And if we don't see that in the poor, we are treating them as less than human. And that is the problem we have in America today. I love this quote from a friend of mine. It says that God has made us free, and when the systems we create reflect our nature, people prosper. I, I think that that's, that is the answer right there. 
when the systems we create reflect the nature of the human person as we really are, people will prosper. In other words, you have to begin to trust the poor as full human beings, capable of making those choices, and then create avenues for them to express that potentiality that becomes an actuality in their lives. That's all what we have to do. Well, you know, we're too busy becoming the saviors of the poor. I always tell people, there's one savior, it's not you. <laughs> it's not you. Stop trying to save people. Just, just give. And sometimes we say, you know, yes, yes, we should not give fish. Just teach people how to fish. Yes, yes, absolutely. But more importantly, sometimes we have just to get out of the way that they're trying to get to the pond. <laughs> they know how to fish, just get out of their way. Don't try to just teach them and, uh, and, and treat them like marionettes of happenstance, that they are there just waiting for you to just rescue them. No, 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 get out of their way, create avenues so they can get to the pond and they can get their own fish. You know, I'm tired of people feeling sorry for us. As a black man, my wife is from Southside Chicago. We have a daughter, we're covered, I tell you. But my, my daughter just recently graduated with very good grades in a, in a Catholic school. And let me brag about her for a little <laughs> bit. She had 4.5. She was a great student. And she's, she's uh, invited to this scholar's night at the university that she was applying and she was so proud of herself, my wife too, and we were all proud and she goes to the university for this weekend, it's supposed to be a scholar's event. And she goes in the, uh, uh, to the event and she looks around and, and she saw about 200 black and brown kids and she said, hmm, mom, uh, there are no white scholars in this <laughs> at this university, it's rare. You know? Well, she found out very soon that it was a gimmick, gimmick. There were people with 2.2, 2.3 was a gimmick to get us Negroes into the university so some bureaucrat can punch the percentage that he wants of us there. And then she was, they were using her as a pawn. You know? and, and, and that was wrong. And she said, Dad, they don't see me. They didn't see me. They saw what? The skin, the right skin, you know? So in America, we went from exclusion because of race, evil, evil exclusion because of race, to inclusion because of race, sometimes even degrading. And we miss the person in front of us. We miss the person because we are too busy counting beads. You know? And we don't see people as what they are, unique and unrepeatable. The next time that she applied for college, in the application where they asked her what is her race, she wrote, none of your business. <laughs> none of your business. What does that have to do with my application? You, know, you need to consider me as an individual person. Don't stand on my way trying to impede my life, but don't give me primary points. I don't need them. And that is the attitude that we have to have. When we see persons as unique and unrepeatable, I tell you, all our problems will disappear. All our problems will disappear because now we are focusing on what is important. That our identity as human beings is not those labels. We are unique and individuals capable of changing our lives by the choices we make. But what is poverty? If I were to ask you right now, eh? Give me the first word that comes to your mind. Don't think about it much. 
when you hear the word poverty? The first thing. Lack. Lack. Low income. Low income. Yeah, that is precisely the kind of answer that I have always given and I always hear. But if we think about it for a moment, when we say that, we are thinking about the empty space, no? And if that is the problem of poverty, all we have to do is what? Fill the empty space and there's no more poverty. But we have found out that that's not true. That's not true. Today in America, we spend about almost $1 trillion in poverty alleviation through 90 government programs of the federal government. That's not including the states and the nonprofits. If you include them, it's about 1.2 to 1.3 trillion dollars a year in poverty alleviation. Only three countries in the world, the entire budget of the whole nation is 1.3 trillion dollars. And we are told today that we have more or less the same percentage of poverty that we have 40 or 50 years ago. Obviously, money is not fixing the problem. In other words, it's more than a lack. And that is the problem we have, is that we focus on the lack, we go and fill the lack, and we never look at the eyes of the poor. So it becomes a, what, a, a bureaucratic exercise of transactional systems that put items from one set of hands into another set of hands. You know, but if you think about that, that's a supermarket. You go there with your shopping cart and you grab the, the item and you put it here and you pay for it. But human beings are more than that. Sometimes I think that we treat the poor as we treat our pets. You, know, you put a bowl of food there and the, your dog comes every day for his bowl of food and you pat, you pat him on the head and it makes you feel good. And that's exactly what sometimes we do with the poor. We think that these transactional systems are going to cure poverty. They, they won't. They want pure power. In my church, what we do when Christmas comes? Well, we put a Christmas tree in the back, and the Christmas tree has a piece of paper with a name, no? And then the next Sunday, we bring the bike. Yeah. And uh, then we have created a bureaucracy that they grab the bike, and they dirty their hands with the poor. So we have our own bureaucracies in our systems, you know? We, you never met that family. You don't want to meet that family. You just want to feel good about having done something and go home justified because you helped the poor. When in reality, what you engaged was a transaction, not an encounter. Not an encounter between free individuals who really care for each other and come together in freedom. And that is what the Freedom Liberty Institute is trying to do. So more important than what is poverty is this question. And we never ask that question. What makes people flourish? What makes people wake up in the morning and, and want to be engaged with the world, engaged in productive activity, engaged with their community, their families, their friends? You know, when you see someone who flourishes, you immediately find out. You, you know that there is something there with this individual. He may be poor, but you know they are going in the right direction because they, there is something different in them. And you know when people languish also. They may even have money, but you know that they're going in the wrong direction. These ideas are not just for the poor. Uh, you, you can spend 40 years building a fortune, and your children will squander it in 40 months if, you, if they don't have the right 
the right attitude and the right values. These are universal truths about the human person. It has nothing to do with poverty. Poverty is more in the soul than in the, in the, in the body. You know? Poverty is the poverty of the soul and the mind, and the culture that is poor. And then if we don't fix that, we will continue to be what? Every year we are told that there are more needs and more needs and we have to spend more money because the poor need more money, they need more resources. And then we spend more and more and more until we will all be on welfare because there's no other way to rearrange society. And how wealth is created? Do we ever ask that question in trying to help the poor? We never ask that question. How is wealth created so we can help people to become engines of wealth creation? That is the way we should see. That's how we should see the poor every time we encounter a poor person. This is an engine of wealth creation, waiting for someone to come and crank that engine and let it soar. And we need to create that avenue and that opportunity for them so they can become creative. And that is the difference between feeling sorry for people and challenging them for a better life. The poor want to work. I, it is a lie that poor people are just a bunch of lazy bums with just one welfare. No, 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 that's not true. The poor work, and the poor want to work. They want to be engaged. But if you are a poor person, and you create systems that incentivize passivity, they, and they have needs in the here and now, they're going to grab what you have offered them. That is just common and normal in the human person. We have to recreate our systems. The first uh, quote I gave, when the systems we create reflect the nature of the human person, people prosper. And the poor will respond to those incentives. Incentives are more important than that your good intentions, more important than dispositions and the incentives you build work against the human nature or for the human nature. If you incentivize poverty, you get poor people. If you incentivize work, you get working people. That is the way this is supposed to be. Let's talk very quickly about poverty in America. By 2010, we, had a, we were told we had 46 million people in poverty. Today is over 50 million people in poverty, 15%. Well, why is the problem with this? It's just a statistic. It does not tell us anything about the real and actual needs of the poor and life conditions of the poor. It is like taking a picture of a stadium full of people. What do you see? You see a mass of humanity, faceless humanity. And who benefits here? You know who benefits? The bureaucrats. The government, the officers benefit. They want those numbers to be very, very big because then more resources go into their systems. And then we surrender our responsibility towards each other because after all, I pay my taxes. I pay my taxes. Why should I care, you know? And then what happens? Compassion becomes, becomes associated with wanting more zeros at the end of the budgets of government programs. That's what being compassionate is. So activism substitutes activity. That's what we are in America today. A lot of activism, which means I mobilize myself to make you change. That's what <laughs> activism means. 
activities when I mobilize myself so I can change by my own effort. I'm not saying that activism is bad all the time. No, no, there are reasons to be active sometimes to change real injustices. But when your life is all about activism, what you are really saying is that the destiny of my life is in your hands. And I have to mobilize you to change my life. What if you say no? <laughs> what if you don't mobilize? You know? I have two alternatives. Get angry at the world, and you know that we have a lot of angry people <laughs> going around, or feel sorry for yourself. That's what happens. And you sit down on the side of the road, and all kinds of opportunities may pass in front of you. You will not see them, because you see yourself as a victim of forces outside of your control. And that is no helping and loving people to become an activist. So but this is what happens in America. This is a bureaucratic exercise. What is bureaucracy? Bureaucracy is simply the normal human response to complexity. That's what bureaucracy is. When things are too complex, we try to what? Make sense of them. To try to be able to manage them. So if you tell me your name, you say, don't tell me. You're too complicated as a person. But I, I can deal with client number five. I can deal with that, you know? Or uh, what are your needs? Well, I have a lot of kind of psychological needs. But no, no, don't tell me about your existential needs. That's just too much, you know? But I know you need food. I can, I can count bags of food. I can do so in other words, we depersonalize the exercise. And we make it quantitative instead of qualitative. Because now we want to manage, be able to manage this problem. And that is what is happening. We are missing the vote about how to really, really help help people. Do you know that in America there are, there are, there are thousands and thousands of people who are upper uh, income people who are counted as poor? Because they only count wages when they count the poor. You have to be reporting that someone is paying you wages. Because if not, then you are counted as poor. You can have only investments. Because there is no employer reporting wages on you, you are in the statistics of poverty. Let me give you an example. In the mid-1990s, supposedly the, the, the poorest county in America was Stanford in California. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've been in Stanford, but that's not possible. But you know why? Stanford University is there. And there were thousands of students who report them as residents with zero income. Of course, they are students. Most of them come from very wealthy families, but they report zero income. And Stanford received millions of dollars to attain a poverty that didn't exist. Palo Alto is a close county, smaller, packed with minorities and, and migrants, but because they have less people, they receive less money from the government. You see how bureaucracies cannot respond to the needs of people because only people can love people? Bureaucracies cannot substitute our encounter with people. So the, U the US welfare today is enormous. 90 federal government means tested programs. And it costs over 1 trillion people. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. The problem with, with this is not that people are receiving help. That's not the problem. If you believe in this system, okay, 
but don't call that compassion. Okay, don't, don't, don't confuse this with what is really going to fix the problems of this country. Only work and family will fix the problems of poverty in America. Work and family. And this is what happened in the, in the system in America until 1967. We never spend more than about $50 billion a year in poverty alleviation, and yet poverty was going down in America. In those days, we changed our minds, began to spend, skyrocket spending, and poverty more or less stabilized between 15 and 20%. Why is that? Because poverty no longer has a sting to it. That's the problem. In the past, poverty had a sting to it. You did not want to be poor because it was really, really bad. So there was an incentive to get out of poverty. It was a real incentive to really mobilize yourself. In the 1800s, you know how Christian ministries used to help the poor? For example, if you went to a soup kitchen, they intentionally made the, 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 the food not taste that well. <laughs> No. They wanted you, they wanted to keep you alive and feed you, but they wanted you to hate that condition. Because in hating that condition, it was the springboard to want, to, to want something better life for your life. But today, we didn't want to give people in soup kitchens rich carton quality food because, you know, they deserve it. I don't know about you, but if you give me rich carton quality food for free, I stay at the rich carton. <laughs> So the incentive is to remain in the condition of poverty because there's no longer what an urgency to mobilize ourselves towards a better life. And the families who had that urgency rise. Those families who don't have that urgency, urgency languish. And that is the key here. The key is not the, the I don't blame the government. The government is simply filling a void that we surrendered. <laughs> We surrender that responsibility and just dump it on them. And then we go back to the government and we blame them. But the reality is the culture determined that. Our culture determined what's happening, not the structures of government. Poverty is a distraction. Again, it's a distraction from the real work of the culture. That is what we need to be focusing on. It is inaccurate to claim that the wealth high welfare benefits reduction rates cause low wage currency. In other words, not to work. In other words, the poor want to work. They do work. It's not that if they go into welfare, then the welfare is eliminated. No, that's not true. What happens is that once you are in the system, then there is an incentive not to lose those benefits. So the incentive is to what? More or less stay where you are, so you don't want to rise too much because then you lose some, some, some benefits. And then the incentive is to stay where you are. And people normally react. It's a normal human reaction. Don't blame the poor for their poverty. We need to blame ourselves for the systems we have created. I have always believed that if we don't have the welfare state, welfare system, I don't believe in it, but let's say that we are going to have we should have the different kind of incentives. What happens when you enter into the welfare state, state system? Well, if you're gonna get more benefits, you have to be weaker and weaker and weaker. You have to make less so they give you more. So what is the incentive? To be strong or to be weak? To be weaker. 
so you get more benefits. You see, that is the incentive. It's not that the poor want that, but there are people who are struggling and have needs now, and we have created incentives that perpetuate poverty. But imagine if you enter into the system, and if, let's say that you get a job, we can give you a little bit more money as an incentive for getting the job. If you keep the job for two years, more money. If you go to a college and you get a two-year degree, we're going to pay you more. So we are creating an incentive for strength. And eventually, the benefits will disappear, but you no longer need the benefits because you are stronger on yourself. You have a job, and you have an education. <coughs> we have incentivized strength instead of incentivizing poverty. And that takes me to the self-reliance club that I want to offer to you as an alternative. Five years ago, I went to a massive distribution of school supplies. And what I saw there, you know, it was a mass of black and brown kids getting the free cheap school, school supplies from a small country of white people. <laughs> and I said, you know, everyone was celebrating. And I said, I don't like this. You know, why is it always us in the receiving end? You know? <laughs> I want to be in the giving end. It feels better when you're in the giving end. Why? It doesn't have to be this way. And I said, it don't mean, you know, what we need to make is make these kids productive. That's all. We need to make these kids productive. Because what are they learning? Early on in life, they are learning that there is benefit at the end of the long lines of dependency. That's what they are learning. And that strangers meet my needs. It's not my, my effort. It's not mom and dad. It's those smiling strangers that probably hate their guts, but they have the good stuff. So I go smiling at them, you know, because they have what I want. And then, will I take care of those school supplies? Not much, because the good smiling strangers will give me more. So they are create, we're creating an incentive in their lives. With a smiley face, we are killing their soul. With a smile. It's not that people, it's not that people are mean-spirited. They are doing out of the goodness of their hearts, they don't want to see the kids with our school supplies, but we don't realize the incentives that we are creating there. And we decided to start the self-reliance club, so what? Let's make them work for it. We will go to public schools. We don't add any new activity into the schools. We simply adopt existing activities in the schools that have entrepreneurial potential. All schools in America are doing things that are entrepreneurial in nature, and we don't even realize that they're entrepreneurial. For example, an arts class. They, the kids are creating wealth every day in an arts class, and we don't realize it. You put a frame on a drawing by a child, and that's wealth. You can sell that, and that can help them in their lives. Many schools have gardens. We have now 27 public schools in Southwest Florida, many gardens. We rename as farms because gardening is a hobby. Farming conveys the idea of wealth creation. The kids are doing exactly what they were doing before. We don't introduce any new activity, but now they see themselves as what? As workers, as entrepreneurs. And then we have these young entrepreneurs fairs at the school or at the local aid a flea market where they create products from the from the garden, from the arts class, from whatever, and on that day they sell their products. They pitch their products, they create their own business, they run their business for a day, 
the money goes, they buy, they, they sell their products, the money goes into their bank account. And at the end of the school year, what we do is that we have this massive uh, field trip to a bank, a primary bank, bank, where we hand them their earnings at the door, they go and open their own bank account, and now they can go and buy their own school supplies. And they buy it because they, because they can stand tall and say, you know, I earned this. this. This item represents my effort. My soul is built is within that item. I am the answer to my problems. And I can go and buy when I choose to go. No one they tell me, you know, be here at 10 o'clock, you know, and smile because the good stuff is coming. No, no, like you and me, we go to the supermarket and buy school supplies when we choose. That is freedom. That is respecting the poor. We need to start respecting the poor, not feeling sorry for the poor. It's respecting them as full human beings. Think about your children. Do you give to your children every time they ask? for something? Do you? Why not? Why, why not? <coughs> you, you don't want them to be entitled. Huh? You don't want them to get entitled. Exactly. We know instinctively as parents that it's not good for them. Because we, want, we are tough on them, we challenge them, when they are not going to be there, you need to fend for yourself. And we love them. There's no one that we love the more, more than our children. But on our children, we, we challenge them. To the children of the poor, what we do? We, we don't free stuff at them. So which one you love the most? Why don't you treat the children of the poor the same way you treat your own? With the same love, by challenging them for a better life. You know? That is what we need to be doing. In America, this is what we have done with poverty. I'm walking down the street. Minding my business, this is real compassion. And I have, I'm eating a sandwich, and I look to the side of the road, and I see a poor person. And then I move to compassion. I deprive myself of what is, belongs to me, and I voluntarily give it to, to the person. That is an encounter between strangers that now have created a community. They have joined as a community. And I will do it again, because it's my property, is the right thing to do, and it feels good in that order. You know, in America, we normally go from the heart to the muscle. We feel sorry for people, we give them stuff. That's what we call compassion. Feel sorry, give stuff. Sometimes under the weight of the free stuff that we dump at the poor, lies their dignity waiting to be awakened. We need to start in the mind from an intelligent assessment of the real needs of the poor then to the heart, and eventually to the muscle, moving to action. But what happens? There's an encounter here. And the person who receives feels gratitude. This guy didn't have to give me his sandwich. Well, thank you. And maybe I'll change my life, and I want to do the same for someone else. But this is what we have done in America. I'm walking down this road with my sandwich, minding my business. I look to the side of the road, and I see a hungry person. And before I can do anything, here comes running the government commissar. He snatches the sandwich from your hands, and he gives it to the poor person. That's a very different scenario now. What you have is, in, on your part, resentment. It was yours, and someone else took it from you, and they decide what to do with it. And you know what you will do next time? You will hide your sandwich. 
Isn't that what we do close to April 15 every year? Isn't that why we hire CPAs to hide our sandwich? I don't see anyone telling their CPA, find out how can I make, pay more taxes. You know, because the poor have means. I am still to find one that does that. We hide our sandwich from others because we want to pay less. And what happens with the poor? Well, yes, a couple questions. Um, how would you attack the, the, the reality, the truth of the problem? Because that's something where I'm, I'm, I'm really not hearing too much, um, no disrespect. Yes. But uh, growing up you know, in America, African-American, uh, knowing our history, I think what the U.S. problem has with the poor and other individuals is, is that uh, a lot of more minorities feel that they're not addressing um, the issue of the race. Race is an issue. You, you, you can't take that out of the element from the simple fact that you know the basis of, of, of America. Um, I agree with you with the the entitlement. You know, many years ago, my mom was one. She was on welfare. In order for her to receive her benefits, the father could be there. Yes. So you have to eliminate the male out of the picture in order for black families, uh, or I'm not even gonna say black uh, individuals to receive poor, yes. to receive government assistance. They have to eliminate the element because you couldn't have the man and female. But if you know the black history, years ago, you know, with slavery, you only had, you had the black males and the male was teaching the males and the women was teaching the women. And you separated that, that eliminated a void that you have that you see this going on right now within the community. Um, education is always an issue and a plus, but those kids return back home into our environment. When they leave school, they turn back into our environment. And jobs is an issue, especially when you're associated with poverty. Um, and so that's where you get the element of the political element is, because then you have to provide jobs for your people. And within um, urban, you know, urban inner cities community, they need those, um, and and that's one way you're also going to fight the, the the poverty aspect of things. Uh, I would love to, for poverty to be gone out of the U.S. of America, but that's somewhat really not a reality. But we're able to get close to where it can be minimized to where it is right now. Yeah. But let me let me just briefly answer. A, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. A, we don't, we don't disagree one thing. <laughs> we agree totally. I think that, that the important thing is, number one, is that to see the person. To see the person as a possibility. You know, as a possibility, as, as, as someone who is worthy and capable. And then create avenues for them to exercise their freedom and create opportunities. If the government doesn't create jobs, we're going to create our own jobs. That's why entrepreneurship is so important. That's what we teach the kids from the fourth grade, to become entrepreneurs, to see themselves as creators of wealth instead of receivers of magnanimity. Why is that? Because in our own history as minorities, we have seen that we have, take, we have what it takes. Because after all these struggles of, the, of, of the slavery and oppression, we're still here. And we are growing, we are, we are creating wealth. That is, I think we have to renew black history from a history of what they did to us to a history of how we became a strong, 
Let me think about, you know, when I speak with African-American males, especially older males, it's one of my, my greatest pleasures. And normally I get two responses. Number one, they hate the segregation. Who wouldn't? <laughs> Who wouldn't hate segregation? Yeah. It was an oppressive system. But you know what they tell me also? Ismael, we long for the days of segregation. And you know why? Because we created our own systems. We created our own business. We were poor, but we bond together. We were strong even in our poverty. We had our own businesses, our own small shops. And, and we created our own opportunities. We helped each other. There were two institutions that strengthened us, our family. The black family is the most important and stronger of all. And we, it's been weakening. But we, it was strong because we needed each other. It's like a friend of mine from Liberia. He tells me, you know, it's my why in Africa families are so strong. Well, if you go to the hospital and your family doesn't bring you food, you die of hunger in the hospital. If you go to jail and your family doesn't bring you food every day, you die of hunger in jail. In other words, you needed each other. And, another, and the church was strong and now it's weak, really. You know what happened in those days? If you will go to your pastor in the black community, the pastor will tell you, I'll help you, but I better see you on Sunday here. You better treat that woman right. You better stay, stay in the straight and narrow. You know, there was, what, a moral expectation attached to the gift. And that kept the family strong because there was an incentive for you to be strong. But in the 1960s, here comes the government with a check in the hand, you know? What's your social? How much you make? Here's the reward for your poverty. Here's the reward. And now I'm a so-called free person with a check but I lost that connection with our community. And we need to recapture that history of beauty and strength. And that's what we're trying to do with the Self-Reliance Clubs, to see these kids as capable. And we follow them. In fourth, we started in the fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And we want to make them strong. We want to make them entrepreneurs. And eventually, when they're in high school, they can create their own industries, their own uh, businesses. And eventually, I will not even have to ask for donations from anyone, because the kids will create the wealth that sustains the entire system. So I think that we are in total agreement. Race is important. But you know something? Race is not me. Is the alliance connected to the parent element? Because you're saying kids, oh, so we have to elevate. You know, one of the issues that I have is that we focus a lot on the kids, and we have to remember that these kids do return into an unstructured environment. Yes. So we that's the reality to the fact. So we can do a lot, you can, you can focus on the kids, but if you don't connect that element oh, to where they're going yes. as they leave or what they're doing at school, yes. it's gonna either revert, yes. you know, or it's gonna, it's gonna be take that child much longer. Now you have smart kids that can just break out of that but the percentage is smaller, and I think the black community, the poor people, doesn't have that amount of time well, you know, to 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 not uh, you know to wait that long. And we got to increase that percentage. Yeah, I, I invite you uh, and all of you to read this book. It's called "And No Excuses" by Abigail and Stefan Turnstrom. They're educators. It's a wonderful book. You know what that book did? They examined six schools in 
in mostly African American, very poor communities with all the the pathologies and problems that you can imagine about black families, you know, what the problems. And they examined these schools because they found that these schools, the kids were excelling anyway, even with all those problems that people they were excelling. You know what was what the motivating factor for that change is that they did not accept as school any excuse. You will come here and you will learn. And you know what was happening? The kids were learning. You're, in spite of the obstacles of your life, they say, yes, we understand all that, but you are going to come here and I don't want to hear about it. You're going to learn. They even have pep rallies for education instead of pep rallies for sports. You know, <laughs> we people think that we only can jump and sing, you know, in the black community. We can jump and sing. No, no, no. You, you can become a doctor, an engineer. You can become whatever you imagine in your, in your minds. And then we, they, they will basically send into the image of the mind that in spite of those problems, they were the answer to their own problems. And the kids were excelling. So we need to begin to trust people that they are, because they are in the image and made in the image and likeness of God, that they have what it takes to change their lives, even in spite of the obstacles. You know when you're running the obstacles race, what happens the moment you look at the obstacle? You trip and you fall. And it's not that they don't know that the obstacle is there. So we are not denying the obstacles of the life. The life. We are not giving that obstacle the power over my life. I will overcome that obstacle by focusing on the goal at the end. And that is the answer to this, this problem. Yeah, I, I've bumped into, uh, I, I, every time I go to Washington, I continue to bump into Nigerians and Ethiopians who uh, one weekend invited me to one of their clubs. And they, 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 their stories are remarkable. And their stories about race are remarkable. Because they have opinions about race that are very different from indigenous uh, folks who've been here a few generations. And, and their success rates, their work ethos, their, now clearly they, 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 they have the discrimination, they, they deal with the systemic racism, but they overcome it. In fact, they see it as a minor impediment. Uh, have you ever brought, try, tried to bring those Nigerians, those Senegal, I mean, those folks, it, it's a remarkable thing what they're doing in their communities, what they're doing with per capita incomes, what they're doing with wealth creation in one generation looks like every other immigrant group that's ever come here. Well, you know, what I want to focus is in, in my institute to go, in, to go into every inner city in America. That's what we want to be. We want to be in Milwaukee, we want to be everywhere with a positive message that encourages people uh, encourage them in the beauty and the goodness that is there in the community and the assets that are there in the community. And then start with the kids to teach them that they are the answer to their own problems. We, we start with the pre-entrepreneurial initiatives at the fourth grade and we pay them for their earning. By the sixth grade, we are not paying them anymore. They are creating products themselves to sell. And now they know when they join the club, whatever you're gonna get from this club, you're going to earn it yourself. You are going to be the, the one. And you know what's happening? 90% of the kids may exceed their goals of earning. Think about that. Instead of the $75, they sometimes make 100, 120, 150. It's up to them. And, and you know what happens? Competition inspires them. If you're making 100, I don't want to make 50. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you. And then that 
helps them become stronger and stronger. We don't introduce any new activities into the schools, you know? The last thing that teacher wants to see is this guy with great ideas and more work for me. Work, you know? But we basically strengthen and encourage the teachers. We pay a stipend to the teacher. The teacher is paid for what he's like. They get a stipend for running the track, track team. Why not the stipend for this? So we pay the stipend to the teacher. The teacher then buys into the vision. The kids work. They earn money. They meet their needs. And then after five or six years of doing that, even if there is benefit independency later, you're not going to want it. Because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. So it's a matter of trusting them, giving them the opportunity early in life, and then you see them grow into productive, self-reliant individuals. That in spite of the real problems that we all have, I came from a poverty I have not seen here in America. We didn't have running water. We didn't have a, even a bathroom at home. So this, the, the, the problems are real. But that is not the story of our, of our life. The problem is not the story. We are the protagonists of, of, of that story. But we have made the poor the scenery in the drama of our good intentions. They are scenery, and we become the protagonists. But we want this to revert that and make the poor themselves the protagonists of their own stories of success. Yeah, I want, I want to get a little theological here. I appreciate <laughs> you bringing in the doctrine of the image of God and other yes. things. I, I guess I'm, I'm really curious about the emphasis on individuality and self-reliance. So, like, in Genesis 1.26, it talks about, like, mankind being made in the image of God, right? Not necessarily individuals. Uh, often in the Old Testament, when God is talking about Israel's holiness, reflecting God's holiness, he's talking about them as a whole group of people. New Testament theme about uh, the body of Christ, right, is a communal concept, a way in which we reflect Christ and participate in what Christ is doing. So I'm curious why we're talking about self-reliant individuals and not uh, inter interdependent communities that can be productive and, and produce things in society. Like, if you could respond Absolutely. to that. Absolutely. I would like you to take one of our, our manuals because we address that, we understand. We are not like a plant that you see that grows in from the ground. You know, we, live, we, we are born into communities. That's why I emphasize, I should emphasize more on the human person. A person has two sides to the human person. One is the, the, the reality of you as an individual person, which simply makes that God expects you to put into motion the gifts that he gives to you within your community. It's never for your own sake. Even enterprise, for, for an enterprise to be successful, you have to look at the needs out there. You have to have a vision towards meeting human needs. And out of that vision of meeting human needs, then you engage in productive activity to meet those needs, and then good comes to you. So absolutely, we are not believers in atomistic individualism, that we are islands into ourselves. The problem is that when you collectivize the human person, you also miss the person. So the, the important is that the person as a unique and unrepeatable, unrepeatable individual that God, God expects to use his gifts for the good of others. But you focus on your gifts because you want to actualize. The only one that you can really motivate and, uh, motivate and actualize towards action is yourself. And then out of out of that, then 
out, then you become generous, and you are able then to contribute with others, to others, you know? It's interesting that when, when I saw these kids in the school supplies event, the ones who were actualizing their dignity were the ones giving. And, and, I, and, and I know that they were doing it out of the goodness of, of their hearts, but those kids are also called to actualize their gifts towards the good of others. You know, we have several clubs in very wealthy areas in Naples and Marco Island, Sunnydale, just so you know, uh, Southwest Korea and all those, those are very wealthy areas. And we want to be there. You know what most of the kids do at the end of the year? They donate their earnings for the whole year for someone in need. Because now they have something and they can make that choice, that personal choice to help and be generous with what they receive. But I agree with you totally. We are not islands unto ourselves. But the reality is that we stand sui generis as individuals in the midst of our community. And our community needs us and our gifts. And when you are self-reliant, simply means that you are actualizing those gifts in you, and then others benefit from, from that goodness. Do you think some of those gifts are relational, like where your community actualizes gifts? Like if I'm around certain friends, I'm lighter, funnier, more humorous because they draw it out of me, but other times I'm more serious because I'm not around those same people. Yes. Or, there, or maybe I'm more creative because I'm with a certain group of people. It just seems like... Maybe there's an opportunity to talk about teams being productive rather than just individuals. That, that's what enterprise is. If you think about it, enter, every enterprise is a community. It's a community where you work with others. The, the, the entrepreneur is, is someone who creates communities of, of exchange, of mutuality. That's what an enterprise is. Absolutely, we agree totally that it's for the sake of the community. But think about it, when you say that uh, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. The point of reference is the self. Because you have to experience in yourself what it is good so you can then pass it on to others. So when you experience to be self-reliant, to meet your needs and create wealth, then you can share that with others. And not, your, not just can, you should be sharing with others because you are a part of a community. Absolutely, we, we have, for example, the kids actually to create a business plan as a team. It's not just individual business plans, as a team. And many of them at the end decide, we're going to donate all our funds to someone in need. We have a club in Cape Coral that has a almost two acre of farm, of land farm. And they last year donated 9,000 pounds of produce. 9,000 pounds of produce. Some of that went to a soup kitchen, and the rest of the, the food now they are selling back to the school cafeteria, and now they're creating revenue. And at the end of the year, they create these mini grants for nonprofits in the community. All of that came out of exercising their self-reliance, exercising their gifts, creating wealth, and now we have something to, to share with others. I think that we are out of, 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 of time, but I, I really want uh, to, to encourage you to, 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 take, to consider the self-reliance clubs. We would like to be here in, in, in this area, creating these opportunities for children. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask a question, because I yes. think I'm, I hope I'm reflecting what the room I want to hear about. 
Okay, I, I know there's some people in the room that have uh, lots of young people uh, in their schools or whatever. What has to happen to get a club started? Very simple. There, we, we need to sit down with the school leadership and at least to have one teacher who says, you know, I want to start a club. That's, that's as simple as that. And we have an assessment of what is happening in the school that has entrepreneurial potential, and that becomes the club. Your arts class can become the club. Your gardening club can become the club. We have science clubs. It could be anything that is already happening in the school that has that entrepreneurial potential, and we start immediately, immediately as that, you know? And then we pay a stipend to the teacher, and the teacher begins to mobilize that, that, uh, that classroom into creating simple, uh, simple events where the kids showcase what they have created. The money goes into their bank account. We create a, a, a partnership with the bank. And at the end of the year, the kids earn, earn the money. We even have our, four, our first self-reliance school, where the entire school is creating all kinds of projects. And they're going to have a young entrepreneurs fair at the school twice a year where they showcase the, what they have created and they are learning how to pitch uh, their business to others and then earn money. The money goes into the bank account for their, their children's education. They have only have to sign a contract saying that no one else in the family will just go, go into the bank account and grab the money. That happens sometimes, you know. You have to be very careful. So they create a, they create a goal. It could be for school supplies. It could be for a savings bond. There are some clubs that the kids, I want a savings bond for my future. A small a fund for my education, whatever. Or the kid can say, no, I want to spend that money this year on my school supplies. It's my choice. Or they want to say, we don't want uh, to keep any of the revenues. We want to give it to someone else. Exercising compassion towards all. It's very simple to start. It's a matter of having one teacher who says, I'm willing. We pay them a stipend. We sit down with them, decide on what is the activity that we are embracing, and the kids are doing exactly what they were doing before. Sometimes what we do is that we bring mulch, we bring resources to the, to the activity. So the activity in the school gets stronger. So nothing is added. The activity gets better. The kids benefit. That means a win-win for everyone. So then ideally, <coughs> if there were uh, people identified <coughs> excuse me, in the schools or other organizations around Milwaukee, you would like to get together with them yes. and, oh, and the director of them through the, yes. how did you get started? Dr. Mark Wardell, who has a, a master's degree in agriculture, for example. Uh, the, the most uh, important activity in Southwest Florida is, is gardens. And you, you should see what he does with those gardens, you know. We go, we meet with a teacher, and we help that teacher. We encourage that teacher, and he will come, sit down with you, create a plan, and, and we are in, we're in business. It's very simple because we don't introduce any new activity. So you don't have to change anything that is happening in the school. So you know what happens many times? You go with a great program and then they have to change the whole schedule and give you time. And no, 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 no. What are you doing? Okay, that sounds like a good activity. Let's do that. And we are in business. It, it, can, it could happen in, in no time because it's and it's part of our principles. 
Freedom happens in the everyday affairs of life. Freedom is not a contraction you hammer into reality. No, no, no. It happens in the everyday affairs of life. The thing is that we don't see it. As I said, the kids are doing a garden crop. What happens most of the time? They create, the, the, grow, the crops grow, go up, they take the food home, and that's the end of it. That's not an enterprise. So when you change their minds, you begin to see production happening. And that is all what it takes. It's very simple to start. We support the work of teachers. We pay their teachers for their work. The kids earn, the kids need, need their needs. As simple as that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.